welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we will be talking about representations of children in games. How have kids appeared in games throughout the years? What moral quandaries do they raise? Also, won't somebody please think of the children? To help me discuss this topic as a man who has the heart of a child, which is actually kind of a, a serious medical condition at his age. But it's my good friend, Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? I am well. Thank you very much for asking. I, uh, you know, you're only as young as you feel. So um, that's that's what I'm going to roll with. I, I feel I'm, I feel I'm, I'm 31, but I feel 45. <laughs> well, I, I guess it goes both ways. How are you? I, 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 other I, than feeling like you're 45, how have you been? How's the house? Well, I also feel like as I'm I'm getting older, the the gap between my actual age and how old I feel gets l- wider and wider too. I'm probably gonna be dead by forty. <laughs> well, <laughs> if this if this keeps up, <laughs> then we're starting this doing, off in well. a really a really positive light. I like it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm doing well. The house is good. Moving in is kind of <sighs> it's moving. It's, mo- it's never it's moving good. in. I know. I know. And this being sort of the first house that we've owned outright, we've been doing a lot of like updating and modifications to it. And man, alive. It just, it takes time, man. It takes a lot of time. All while juggling your, your two-year-old. Great segue, dude. Ah, I like it. I did <laughs> We're talking about children today. And we have a, an amazing guest to talk about children with. She's a former journalist for GamePro Magazine, Kotaku, and other outlets. Now she's a senior business developer with Unity. Please welcome AJ Glasser. AJ, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, just... I, should, I should have asked beforehand. Did I, did I get your last name? Oh, yeah. Perfect. Glasser. I mean, I've heard it always. Glazer, Glazner. Um, I love it when people stick a K in there just to really keep me on my toes, but Whoa. it's Glasser and you got it right on the first try. <laughs> All right, right on. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Um, you mentioned that you moved into a house and you're juggling a two-year-old. I mean, we have a condo that we just finished painting a bedroom in, and that's just like, you know, the tutorial to owning a house. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm in awe. I don't know how you're doing that at 31. I'm 33, kind of a late bloomer. I And see, we, when we moved in, the, the first thing we did was knock out a wall in the house, which I also have zero experience with. Like, fortunately, uh, our realtor is also, they, they do a lot of flipping, so they took the wall out for us. But now we got to, like, now we got to sand and paint and So they did the, the fun uh, part and they left the shitty part to you? Yeah, right? Like, I would have been, give me, give me a sledgehammer and I'll, I'll start they, this. Well, they they did a they did the uh, the drywall and everything, so they took care of a, a lot of the shitty part. But yeah, we still got a lot of shittiness ahead of us. Hey, oh, it's man. uh, they did it for free though, so I, I really cannot complain. Of course, they did it for free. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> like it's not my house. Let me let me yeah. break this all of this. Well, AJ, for for people who might not be familiar with you, where did you get your start in? writing about video games is it something you went to school for or how'd you how'd you get into that god no i went to school to be a diplomat and then we went to war with iraq so that didn't really pan out um (laughs) and immediately after college you know i graduated i spoke some japanese um i had a boyfriend in the bay area i didn't want to break up with to go to grad school right away i was trying to figure out what to do and um i actually got into quality assurance testing for video games i started out at sony computer entertainment they staffed through a um a third-party solution and I worked on Ratchet and Clank Size Matters as a tester. It was amazing. I also did some work on Resistance Fall of Man. This was right before the PlayStation 3 and the Xbox 360 launched. Um, and from there, I went over to Sega, where I got to work on a game called Crush, which is amazing. And some less amazing games we're not going to talk about. And 
When you're writing bug reports, I mean, it's not too different from writing game reviews. So on the side, I started applying to some writing gigs because I, I enjoy writing. It's something I had done a long, long time. And I love playing video games. I'd done that for a long, long time. And GamePro Magazine at the time was hiring for a, I think it was either a managing editor or a features editor. And I applied having no experience and no clips, but I managed to reference oral sex in the cover letter. Hell yeah. And the editor thought it was so funny that he brought me in to meet me and found out I was a woman and was like, oh my God, we have to get you writing freelance <laughs> for us. You have no experience, but we're going to fix that. And that guy's name is George Jones. And I will forever be grateful to George um, for causing this. If, you, if you're mad at me being in the games industry, blame George. Um <laughs> Hold and on, yeah, I'm taking there, notes I... how to do a resume right now. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I, I don't advise putting jokes about oral sex in cover letters. I, I was desperate, I was having trouble making the rent, I was thinking about breaking up with the boyfriend, I was in a weird place. <laughs> um, in any case, yeah, I stayed in QA, I mean, it's a very volatile thing to do, you get laid off pretty cyclically, and so during one of the layoff oh, yeah. periods, I found a associate editor position open at Future US, and at the time, they operated Games Radar, which was a really great site that used to be really into the top 10 lists, only they had this magic formula where they were doing top sevens because that trafficked better. Uh, so that's how I got into internet journalism, which is very different from print uh, back at those days, you know, when there was still print. And I did that and just stuck with it and stuck with it. And when the economy got super bad in 2008, I went back to school. I went to Stanford University and got a master's in journalism where my master's thesis was actually on the subject of ethics in video games journalism. And then Gamergate happens like four years later. Lovely. What is one of the most cosmic jokes I have ever participated in? <laughs> Man, it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like at almost every turn you were thrown kind of a, a curveball in your career. You, you, you said you, en you enjoyed writing before you ever got hired to do any of it. But once you sort of became a video games journalist, did how did the the track of your career sort of follow what you had imagined in your head? I actually stopped imagining things in my head. It's hard to describe, but I figured out the hard way that there was no straight path forward. So I thought I was going to be a diplomat. And, you know, I went and I lived abroad in Japan learning Japanese. And I really understood then what it would be like to live abroad and be representing your country, even when you're asleep in a foreign country. And, you know... It's just such an eye-opening experience to realize that who you thought you were going to grow up to be just is not an outcome. It's not something that's going to happen that way. So I got very good at what I would call adaptive adventuring, where whenever something came up that looked interesting, I instead of thinking of all the reasons why I couldn't do it or shouldn't do it or that it didn't fit the arc of this narrative I had in my head, I'd just do it and let the story backfill itself in. Adaptive adventuring, I like that. I, I, yeah. I do something similar, but it, it's just in life, it's just called flailing around aimlessly until I land somewhere. <laughs> but I think that that's really what it is being life. Some people really do have like the arc of their life figured out and they have all the major beats planned out. A lot of the people I went to high school with, for example, are married with children right now and they've had children for over a decade. Yeah. My life doesn't follow a straight path, but you follow what you're interested in, right? That's sure. the best way to yeah. do an adventure. So I think that I'm having a pretty good time, all things considered. And my advice for people who are kind of at the beginning of this process, maybe you're in your teens, maybe you're in your early 20s, maybe you dicked around for your whole 20s and you're waking up in your 30s now thinking, oh my God, I have to get serious. Um, That's me. That's me you're talking to right now. Oh man. But let me let me be real with you. It, until you're dead, it's never game over. So don't sit there thinking or feel guilty for even one second that you had to follow this path and you went off the path and now you can't have a happy ending. 
Like, that's not true. So just keep adventuring and it'll work itself out. Yeah, when I was yeah. younger, I always just assumed that, like, one day I would wake up and be an adult and, and know things. And then, like, the older I got, I was like, well, I don't really know that much yet. And then I just kind of realized nobody has any idea what they're doing. Everyone's just kind of making it up as they go. That's quite true. Exactly. It's very now, true. I'm curious, you know, Jared, he works in television. Typically, he was working freelance, although now he's 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 working something a little more stable currently. Um, but I know in like video games journalism, particularly, there's a lot of uh, turnover might not be the right word, but I know it's like, oh, no, it's turnover. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. I, mean, I, I know it's like pretty tumultuous, like being in that industry. And I wonder if, if speaking with other journalists, if you find that a lot of people in that industry sort of have a similar experience to yours where you just kind of got to be ready to like pick up your life and move to a, a different, move on to a different thing. Is that something you find that other other people in the journalism industry experience? You know, everybody I've met in journalism, and I divide this into two groups. I divide it into people from games journalism and then people that I know in more broad journalism. So the broader field of journalism has gone through traumatic shifts, like just everything is different now in journalism. And what used to be kind of a stable environment, you know, with paid content, newspaper subscriptions, and that sort of model, all of that has gone away. And there are way more qualified people to talk about this that I graduated from Stanford with. But the point is that you just can't really be the journalist that you see in the movies anymore and expect to stay employed. That is just not true. You will be underemployed most of the time. You will be doing a lot of writing on the side that is not actually journalism at all. Um, most of the professional journalists I know, and I'm talking about guys that write for the New York Times. I mean, that's that's the brass ring of games journalism, excuse me, of journalism journalism. And they can't afford rent. And so they have to do side jobs or work at a coffee shop. Like, it's not it's not anything like the movies. So it's still a noble pursuit. And it's still critical to society. Like, the actual function of journalism is protected in our First Amendment because it's so important. And we just haven't really figured out what that means in I think it's uh, becoming increasingly apparent how important yeah. it is this you know the last couple of years even oh yeah it's it's very different now and so there's still some some working out there to do and i've seen a lot of my friends and former bosses and former coworkers kind of developing what that future is going to look like some really cool things in hyper local journalism some really cool things in kind of bounty driven journalism globalization stuff i mean we could waste a whole podcast on that but it has nothing to do with our topic today <laughs> and then in games journalism um these are super fans like unanimously people who write about games write about them because they care about them not because they're you know care about journalism and those people will find very quickly especially in the last 10 years that there's a ceiling and you get to it rather quickly and once you hit that ceiling you are no longer a journalist you either have to become a media personality and there're definitely a lot of people out there who are very successful at that twitch followers you know running a stream on it or they've adapted to television or radio very very well they're funny and they're stand up comics and they have some sort of hook that's not really about the journalism. It's about the passion, and that's how they sustain their careers. But even these guys, like, none of the people that I worked with, except for one or two, and they were in design, uh, can afford a house in the Bay Area. It's just not doable. And a lot of the people that I know who did marry young or have children right now had to make some very difficult sacrifices and, you know, leave games journalism because there's just no sustainable way to raise a family on it. And there's also nowhere else to go. More and more publications would shut down, which would mean that there are fewer ways to move up. So if you were a contributing editor, you might be stuck at that level for 11 years and never 
be made a managing editor, which is sort of the next rung up in most publications. So it was a dead end for a lot of people. And I couldn't tell you what some of them are doing now. I mean, once you leave, I think that you stop going to the parties, you stop going to the game developers conferences. And it's a little sad to just not see people that used to be your family. But some people like me went inside. And that was something that was always a known quantity. I think you know, this is coming to me. I had a Game Informer issue the month that I graduated from college. And I was reading about it, and one of their editors had scored an associate producer role in what eventually I think became Fallout 3. Um, and it was funny because I recognized her name at the time, like way later when I was covering Fallout 3 as a games journalist. But I couldn't tell you her name now because I'm old and my mind doesn't work the same <laughs> way that it used to. In any case, yeah, a lot of people went inside. And so when I got an opportunity to go inside, and this this was um, not even really inside because Facebook doesn't make its own games. Facebook is just a platform operator. I took the job at Facebook in developer relations because it was something I knew how to do. It tapped a lot of the same skills that I had as a journalist. It tapped a lot of the same network that I'd already spent a decade building as a journalist. And now that's my primary business. And it puts a lot of money in the bank and it pays for the condo in the Bay Area in a way that journalism never could. And it makes me sad, but at the same time, I don't get to dictate the value as much as I wish that I could in what people write or what people cover. Yeah, I, I feel like especially with the the prevalence of the internet and uh, how many people sort of do it out of passion and, and less for the money that there's a lot more people willing to do the work for, for less money just to sort of get to do it before you escaped video games journalism was was there a, a particular like genre of of game that you liked to cover oh my god so these could be kind of contentious depending on what publication you're at there's stuff that i developed a specialty in because if you were a sports writer for example or if you loved madden or uh if you were really into the nba you could actually make a pretty steady living just doing reviews of those games because a lot of times publications had trouble covering them like, how many times did you actually open a GamePro magazine and look at the review of the latest Madden? You probably never did it. But somebody had to write that content, and it had to be somebody who knew the background of sports well enough to talk about it cogently. And my God, is it tragic when they would take a poor sucker like me and make me write about the <laughs> NHL games. Like, yeah, I like hockey. I have no idea what I'm talking about. I've never played any of these games since the Sega, you know, Master System. What the hell? The puck but, slides real good. That's that would yeah. be the extent of mine. So I, AJ, on, you, wrote, you wrote three pages on the pucks physics and nothing on the team <laughs> composition. What's going on here? I know, right? It can get so bad. Or like how pretty the uniforms were. My God. Um, but <laughs> I, I developed a couple specialties to to make sure that I was always marketable. I got good at covering MMOs, even though I did not play that many of them. And I think it was fairly obvious to certain people that I did not really play them that much. But a woman writing about MMOs was apparently, it would just it was like catnip to editors. As soon as they found out I was a woman, they wanted me to write about World of Warcraft. It was the damnedest thing. Huh. Um, so I just got good at talking about MMOs. I actually ended up going on like a huge, huge research bent just to find out more about them. And to be clear, I don't like playing them because as soon as they find out that you're a girl in the game, then, then shit gets weird. Yeah. I just had this weird thing where I never wanted to pretend that I was a different gender, even for my own safety, because fuck you. Right. <laughs> that worked for me, and I learned a lot about game design for multiplayer that actually is feeding my career right now in a very meaningful way. So, like I said, being an adventurer, it's not something I deliberately chose to do. It was something I fell into. 
But whenever I could, I would also argue for why I should be allowed to cover JRPGs, because I happen to like them most of the time. There are a few out there that are crap. And also because they're very long and very meaty. And a lot of the publications I worked for very early on kind of insisted that you had to get past like a six-hour mark, an eight-hour mark. Kotaku actually used to have a very rigid, you must beat the game rule. And so I developed a specialty where I was just very fast at beating games like that. And so I could get a hold of things uh, before other editors who maybe had seniority. And that that caused a few fights. I also made a few friends because, you know, people who like JRPGs tend to eventually like each other um, when they fight about stupid shit like which character romance you pursued. And um, yeah, speed was another thing where if something was coming in too close to an embargo, they would give it to me because they knew I could beat it faster than anybody and I could write it faster than anybody. This would sometimes lead to mistakes, of course, because that's what happens when you're going too fast or omissions. But at the same time, it was something I was so well known for that people would pay me extra to do last-minute embargo reviews. And that's crazy. I, thinking about video games, video games seem kind of unique. Where, like, if you think about things like movie reviews, I, I feel like someone who does a movie review can kind of review almost anything, if that makes sense. I wrote sense. a paper like, about this. I wrote a to- I actually wrote a oh, paper yeah. on this exact subject at Stanford. Um, and Steven Totillo, who is the current, I think, EIC at Kotaku, was my boss at the time. And he let me interview him for it. And he said, and I quoted it in this paper, um, in games, it's not like you're a journalist going to the symphony and you're writing about the music. In games, you're writing about the instruments. And every time you switch games, it's a different instrument. Here, play this. Here, play this. Here, play this. And so when you're talking about it, you're not talking about the symphony. You're talking about the instrument. And it's just a different context switch that most people are not capable of doing. So sticking the New York Times journalist into a games reviewing situation sucks for him and it sucks for the readers too because that guy is being asked to play trombone when he was just there to listen to the music that's actually that's a super interesting analogy and i have to give it to steven steven's really really good (laughs) at this and he's been thinking about it for years and i hadn't even really like considered that too much you know i i've i had read an article a long time ago that was talking about sort of the the language that we use when we refer to video games, like video game is sort of this like huge umbrella that covers a lot of different things, but I hadn't really thought about it from the journalist side of things. Like, yeah, if you, if you don't know much about sports, yeah, you're ill-equipped to sort of review the, the sports games. I, I, if someone, yeah, if someone had tasked me to review the newest Madden, I have no context for what the old Maddens were like. And while I enjoy football, I can't really speak too much to the mechanics of the game and how it translates to the, the video game adaptation so yeah no it's it's tough to think about and so one of the things that kind of guided me and it guides a lot of people and it will get us back on track i swear but <laughs> when you look for things that you're passionate about so for me speed or something i like to do in a game over and over again like pursuing romance quests if you follow that kind of with that adventuring spirit that i mentioned before you kind of end up being able to speak from a place of strength strength doesn't necessarily mean that you have the knowledge it means that you're able to go through when you don't and show the reader how you're getting there. And that's actually the purpose of journalism is a lot of this experiential stuff. You can't go to the war and see what's happening. So the reporter is trying to put you there from an experiential level so that you can make your own decisions. That's the purpose of journalism. It's information that's supposed to be pragmatic, as in it's supposed to change the way that you do things. In games journalism, that means it changes what you play. So... Having a different background that's maybe non-traditional or does not conform to, say, a sports fan can be useful. And I definitely saw that being a woman in games and things that women are interested in, I would apply that to games. 
And if you look at my work on Kotaku and GamePro, some of the stuff got cover, uh, copied over to TechHive, for example. You'll see I had some core themes. I had some core narratives around wanting to own property. If there was a game where I could buy a house, I'm so fucking there. Like, that's why I played Oblivion was to buy a house. How ridiculous is that? And, <laughs> and it's, Fable. It's, tru- it's truly fantasy. The yeah. idea of owning a house is actually now fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> For some people, yeah, and it's 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 nothing like I thought it would be. Now that I own a condo, and it's so hard to do the walls. My God. But, uh, but in any case, I mean, children really came from that. I love games where you could procreate, and not like and it's, and there's two different categories, right? Like for a long time in the 80s and 90s, when they would make games for girls, they were called pink games. They were literally called that. They were supposed to be about things like buy, decorating a house or having a baby or brushing hair. Because that's what they knew girls were interested in. That's why those horses games always made so much money is because, yeah, like this was just a zeitgeist thing that games were following along with, not creating. But then, you know, there were boy games to kind of go along with that. And it was weird to have these game types that were excluding each other because why wouldn't you just make a game to rule them all? Don't you get more money that way? And this is really where the games in the early aughts came around, like Oblivion, which is not for boys or for girls. And they started to include things like having a house or having a family or building a legacy. I mean, that was really fascinating. Um, has anybody here played Metal Gear Solid Five, for example? Yes. So in Metal Gear Solid Five, you've got that whole base mechanic, maintaining the base. They had never done anything like that before, really, in Metal Gear. And that concept of you had the base and you had these people you recruited who went out and did these missions and it gave you, you know, asynchronous XP or bonuses, that all came from Facebook games. And other online games in China from like decades ago. Yeah. And it was really interesting that those games were made for girls and they were about having a house and having your husband go to shopping or like having a farm and having to like go harvest your shit. And Metal Gear is like, fuck it, I'll take that game mechanic. I'll adapt that. That makes yeah. sense. And so you start seeing these things come up even in the boy games because sometimes you just want to live a fantasy that has a similar core loop. There, oh, there, yeah. there was one point in my in my base building adventures in Metal Gear Solid. I was like, this this is just Animal Crossing. What? Yep. <laughs> How did they trick me <laughs> into this? It is Animal Crossing. And, and last week, or uh, in our last episode, we talked with Abby Russell about uh, character customization, which always kind of strikes me as like dolls for adults, which I'm all for. Like, <laughs> I, I love that idea, but it uh, it it always kind of comes across that way, especially. Uh, when you can try on different clothes and stuff every time i play it i'm like this this is this is barbie dolls but i love it (laughs) i mean there you go so this sort of brings us around to one of the other things i know you want to talk about today and i think it's the reason we even found each other on the internet was because way back in 2009 ish yeah 2009 i wrote an article called knocked up a look at pregnancy and video games that was not my headline i think that's a michael mcwhorter headline (laughs) i'm actually really bad at headlines Um, But I loved playing games like The Sims where you could get pregnant. I only played Harvest Moon because it was one of the ones that allowed you to have a child and the child would... I don't think the child really grows up in that one. Like, they'd just stay a kid forever. Fable 2 had come out around then. I was very into Fable 2, um, which, again, you can buy property in that and have multiple spouses and have multiple children. I did all of these things. And I was looking at this through the lens of of aspiration. I mean, I really wanted to be a mom back in 2009, but it wasn't my time I was with the wrong man. I was in the wrong situation. I made almost no money. But, you know, I could go play The Sims and have that wish fulfillment, even if it was all just, you know, for fun. And now, 
almost a decade later when I'm actively trying to have a child, it's still very comforting to me to go play games with pregnancy in them, even if they're not for girls, just because it's nice to think about. And it's fun mm. to play. And my God, does it make for some ridiculous situations. Um, like in Harvest Moon. So you you get pregnant, but it doesn't tell you that you're pregnant at first. And then you're still working the farm. And then you get like a little cutscene where your character has a startling realization. And then all of a sudden these hearts appear above her head. And then uh, there's a cutscene with like you and the doctor and your husband character. And the doctor tells you, oh, you're going to be a mom or you're going to be a parent or something. And then you're just back to work in the farm. And your body yeah, that's doesn't. How, that's how it was. That's how it was for us. That's not, that all sounds pretty. Sounds accurate. normal. Oh man, sounds, yeah. so, is your partner like, like hella pissed that like she, like she has to go out and weed the fucking garden <laughs> while you're doing God knows what? I think I married the tailor or something too. So that guy was even more useless than a normal NPC. <laughs> Take that, tailors. <laughs> well, there goes our In demographic of tailors. <laughs> Well, this this actually sounds like a great place for us to jump into actually full on talking about our topic, which is children in video games. And we kind of like to start out talking a little bit about history. So, Jared, yeah, where 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 did children first appear in games? Well, one of the earliest depictions, I think, um, we can point to the Magnavox Odyssey console back in 1972. It was a game called I think it was a packing game. It came when it was released called Simon Says, and you, you know it's it's the typical children's Simon Says. Um, but one person would play the role of Simon and the players drew cards on a physical card deck. And then they would read the instructions on the card out loud and two people, the, uh, two other people playing the game would have to do the thing. Like Simon says, find the leg. Like a lot of the games on the Magnavox Odyssey, it used overlays for your CRT, TV or monitor, or whatever you had, I guess. And upon receiving the instruction from Simon, each player would put their cursor on the corresponding item or body part. There wasn't None of actually... us were alive at this time, right? None of us were alive in 1972? No, no, no. that's correct. Um, so it's like, is there this even is a like video a very of this early... online anywhere that we could look at? Um, I, I did not find... I didn't see video when I was doing I was the research. able to see screenshots There's... of like the overlay, right? Yeah. And so for those who oh my God. Are, are more familiar with the Magnavox Odyssey, the basically the only thing that the odyssey did was project these like white squares on the screen that was about all it was capable of doing um so the all of the games that were boxed in or that came out for it later were all these games where you were essentially just moving these white squares around on the screen to do different things so this one they they tried to sell the magnavox odyssey as a toy which is why they packed in like dice and monopoly money and a physical deck of simon says cards to draw from because they wanted it to like be put in toy stores but they they were like really trying to think outside of the box of like how many games can we create where the only thing that you're capable of doing is moving some white tiles around on the screen so that's like where the idea of these overlays came from you put this overlay on the screen it's a picture of children um, I think it had a spot where you would each player would put their cursor to start out with. And then as soon as Simon said what they were supposed to find, it was a race to put your cursor on that part of uh, the, you know, the character's body or they also had a pet with them as well. Oh, my God. Yeah, I just found a screenshot of it with these uh, demon looking. Ch- Look at their <laughs> necks. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like they have like floating heads. It's it's really weird and also so white. Just so white. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Also, what the hell? Why does the girl get the cat? Sexist. <laughs> <laughs> but I think Sorry, I, I'm playing. I'm playing Gamergate Bingo with you guys, so yep. I'm just gonna 
periodically say stuff. Play along like at home. Sounds good. Yeah, we'll link we'll link in the description to the PDF. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, fast forward, I guess, into like the '80s when you started having you know what you would consider more of a, a modern video game. You had games like Donkey Kong Jr. and Pac-Man Jr. In Donkey Kong Jr., you played Donkey Kong's son, and Mario hasn't imprisoned your father. So Mario stands at the top and, and guards guards your father's jail cell while you're trying to set him free. I thought that was pretty funny. Mario ended up being the bad guy in that. Same thing with Pac-Man Jr., basically the same idea. I think it was just their way of selling more arcade cabinets. Now, it, it might be worth saying that when I was doing research for this episode, I I tried very very hard to find games that had representations of children between the years of 1972 and 1982 and i looked at a lot of stuff like the uh the atari had come out in that time period there was uh plenty of arcade cabinets that had come out in that time period and there was not a whole lot of children represented in games there were a lot of things like spaceships airplanes cars motorcycles those kinds of sort of i guess um, amb- ambiguous things but not a whole lot of not a whole lot of children yeah i mean there's a whole topic in here about how graphics really change the way that people visualize themselves in games because when it's an interaction based medium how you see the self in games is going to be wildly different depending on what's graphically available you're going to want to get a graphics artist to talk about that because i am not qualified but <laughs> You know, you, you're right. Like Donkey Donkey Kong Jr., I actually played the hell out of that game. I adored it. And then um, on the NES, we actually had Dragon Power, which if you're a Dragon Ball Z fan, that's the original Dragon Ball game from Japan. And the only reason why it's a game with a child in it is because Goku's a child in the comic books. Like, that's that's the reason why. It's not like they sat there and like, oh, we're going to make a game about a kid. They're like, no, we got to make Dragon Ball. Oh, God, how do we make Dragon Ball? We'll just make him shorter than some of the bad guys. And that was their solution for that. And then that's around the time that The Legend of Zelda came out. I know it's in your notes, and I wanted to bring that up because we were talking about it, and I thought to myself, do we actually know if Link is a child in 1986 or not? Like, is that canon? He is, he is 12 years old. From from what I had, what I had gathered about this game, uh, Link is 12 years old in The Legend of Zelda. Where that uh, information comes from, that I, I, that I can't say. If it I was know. From, if it's citation in game. I only yeah. know one Zelda super fan I can ask, and I think he's still asleep. But <laughs> right. I, I'm sure someone's going to hear this podcast and just go wake him up. Crazy. Damn it! Let's find out right now. No, God, <laughs> internet, you have to wait until people wake up. I um, mean, but but you also found Alex Kidd in the Miracle World, which I've never heard of. So this was sort of the Sega Master Systems response to, um, I believe it was Mario. It was like sort of their platformer game that was going to compete head to head with with the Super Mario Brothers. This. I, all of this is interesting, so we should we should say uh, the Dragon Power game was 86, Legend of Zelda was 86, and Alex Kidd in the Miracle World was 86. And these are sort of the first uh, humanoid children that I was able to find in in video represented in video games, and it's all sort of around this like mid 80s. And I was curious if you guys had any sort of like guesses why that is, because I. I the other thing in my research is there's just not a whole lot written about children in video games, like the portrayal of children in video games. Um, but I mean, do you guys have any ideas? I have some theories around this just based on a lot of tangential research I did on console history for different feature stories I've written or contributed to in the past. And honestly, you have the fall of Atari, which really hurt the market. Um, and then you had the Nintendo Entertainment System, which was portrayed as this really um, 
family-centric. I mean, it's called the Famicom for a reason. It was supposed to be the family computer uh, and live in the house and be for everyone. And so you started to see this Holy concept. Holy crap, I of, did never put that together before. Oh, dude, it's cool. I lived in Japan. I have to think about these things all the time. It was fun. Um, yeah, Famicom, that's why it was called that. So you have this market where it's supposed to be for everybody. And so you don't see a whole lot of over-addressing children because why would you? It's supposed to be for everybody. And then as you're starting to get into the mid-80s, you have one or two games, maybe like Dragon Power, maybe like Donkey Kong Jr., and you start to see those sold really well. And then you start to wonder why, and then maybe you do some market research and you realize, holy shit, kids are the only ones really consuming this stuff. It's all about the kids. Hey, let's make some games that address that market very specifically, and then we can sell more, we can sell bigger, we can sell better. Um, you start seeing things like in 1988, for example, that's Super Mario 3, they started adding... Um, they had enemies in that, the Koopa Kids, and if you read in the manual, it called them all Bowser's children. In current Nintendo canon, um, there is only one Bowser's child, and that's Bowser Jr., and all those other Koopa Kids are just, I don't know what the hell they are, but they're not, he did not father that many bastards, apparently. Um, this is cult following. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's really strange, though, but you start seeing in the market in the mid-80s, yeah, they went hard on aiming at children, on aiming video games at children, and then in the 90s, that's when, like, that first, very first Legend of Zelda commercial I can remember seeing in the United States was in the 90s. Like, the kid running around the house yelling Zelda. That's literally the commercial. It's, it's fucking tragic. You should go look at that sometime. <laughs> I, but you, you're selling was... more. You're selling a ton in the 90s, and you're selling it to kids. So maybe that's where it comes from. Also, the graphics are really catching up, so you could actually represent children in a way that made them look like children, which just made merchandising easier. Maybe it's just because this is like when I was growing up, but that's kind of the 90s, the early 90s especially, sort of seems like that golden age of like marketing to children. It seemed like it was kind of like everybody do whatever they want. Like it's whatever. Like we're going to sell this. Oh, yeah. We're going to stuff this stuff down kids' throats and make them yell at their parents to get it. Like oh, that yeah. was like the, the mentality it seemed like behind the marketing. Buy, yeah, buy a, buy a super soaker, shoot a Nerf gun, drink Capri Sun and turn into a, a metal blob. <laughs> it was <laughs> Tony the Tiger's there for some reason. Uh, I was curious because what I was thinking about in the 80s was also we saw in film a bunch of movies that had kind of come out that featured children Goonies. as the... Yes, Sorry. exactly. I was That was the first one that jumped to my mind was the Goonies. Um, but there was uh, also Gremlins and... Uh, even in like a movie like Poltergeist kind of, you know, I'm now I'm just rattling off Steven Spielberg movies, but <laughs> is uh, there were, there was a lot of films I think that in the eighties were sort of focused on, on children. And I was curious if that had sort of bled over into video games, but I, I'm, like most things, it's probably a, a bunch of different factors, but it definitely seemed like in the mid eighties, there was like an explosion of representations of children in games. Definitely. I can, I can see that. And I think you're right. I think it's a bunch of things that kind of came together all at one time to bring us to where we are. And then, you know, what's interesting about the 90s, the late 90s, or particularly what I'm thinking about. That's, you know, the advent of Ultima Online and, you know, online games where there's this concept of persistence. That was really when you started to see it. It's also where you started to see sequels really becoming important because if you bought the first two Sonic games, of course you'd take a risk on Sonic and Knuckles, even though it was a brand new character. Um, so you started to see... I'm trying to think about what the financial situation was um, in the in the late 90s. You're going to have to find someone who is more cogently able to discuss it than me. But I wonder if people were worried about being able to sell, if they were worried about whether or not new ideas would, would not do as good. And, of course, at that point, you had a lot more competition in the consoles. And you're moving into, like, the PlayStation 2 era where you really 
you know, you had to bring it because there was so much competition then, as opposed to in the, you know, post fall of Atari, like competition was a lot flatter. So I'm wondering if that also fed into it is just trying to address more markets that you could make more money and then trying to do more sequels. And so as you're doing sequels, why wouldn't you give someone a kid? Like, you know, Bowser gets a kid and Donkey Kong gets a kid and, has Sonic ever gotten a kid? I guess he hasn't. I, I, I was when I was reading about this. A lot of people refer to Tails as like a as a child figure. So I, I don't know. I, I always kind of assumed that he was like Sonic's like brother, but apparently he's, 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 he's younger. Yeah. I mean, Wait, aren't, aren't, we they, aren't they different species? Hey, am I crazy? <laughs> we're talking about a hedgehog that runs fast. I mean, have you seen hedgehogs? They are they are not nimble animals. Yeah, I well, I don't. Who knows where that even came from? And so who cares if he's his child or not? Yeah. He does definitely adopt the child. The child representation well jared are you are you playing any games right now that include children representations of of children um i mean i kind of consider all of my armor sets in in monster hunter my my children look at them that was that was for last episode jared oh sorry um well not not really i mean i've I've been playing through like several games simultaneously but um i think like the last one where it really kind of had the child in the sense of that there was also maybe a father figure involved it was a dream daddy which i which you chose for me to stream uh during the extra life thing um (laughs) and it it turns out i knew nothing about the game going into it and it was i was like what is steve getting me into um but it, it turns out to be like actually very well written game and I think one of the most interesting parts of the game is the dynamic between the father who you're playing as and the like teenage daughter. Um, they have a great relationship. It's 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 one of the most believable father daughter relationships I've seen depicted in video games. So that was, I guess, what it came to mind when we started talking about this. That game, I think, raises a lot of interesting points. But one of them is, you know, it, it's a dating simulator, more or less. Uh, yeah, it has sort of like comedy trappings but the addition of the daughter to that game adds a new layer to the considerations that you're making and i granted i don't play a lot of dating sims so maybe a lot of dating sims include stuff like that it depends Uh, what country they came from sure yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) um but having having the daughter in that game even even just watching you play it jared when you were streaming for the charity it definitely seemed to weigh on some of the decisions like you know which which of the other dream daddies are you are you romancing you know are, are you it, going it did affect like how the, the daughter saw you you know and like your mm-hmm. decisions it, it wasn't so, so much like i don't even almost consider it a dating simulator like you would think of you know some of the stuff that comes out of japan but it's more of like it's more of like a i don't know it's a it's like a story adventure game um surrounding sort of like a dating sim sim but well, it's more like about the relationships which i think were like just outstandingly written and it was it was way oh, it caught me off guard you guys need to go play hot to full boyfriend i've heard that that's the pigeon dating sim right yes it is <laughs> it is glorious but there's also like this advent in storytelling games that's really been going on for the last five years around that brings us things like my horse prints on mobile and um Hotful Boyfriend and other amazing dating sims. But yeah, just the concept there's that, of... There's that one where you can... Coming out soon where you can romance your sword. What? I have heard of that one. Although I'm wondering if there's maybe more than one and us us terrible gaijin just don't know about it. Um, <laughs> it's possible. Is it called Soul Calibur? It's Soul-Caliber? a brand new world as far as, as, as emotionality of objects mm-hmm. is, is conveyed. Um, but I find that interesting that you thought that you your choices felt different to you based on the fact that there was a daughter. 
Is that I, I am felt, I understanding you? I felt, yes. Like, I felt like my decisions, my choices were more driven by the relationship that I had with my daughter versus the, like, trying to fuck a dad. Like, that to me, that just seemed like the, <laughs> the background of, of the actual story, whereas, like, it was more about, you know, building that relationship and uncovering what was going on with your family. And that's a game that doesn't, like, a lot of games the the fun of the game is the feedback you receive you know watching your watching your points go up or or getting a new piece of of loot and in the dating sims again i haven't played a lot of them so uh please forgive me if just keep caveating that all you want (laughs) i know (laughs) this is what i'm talking about when i say like we speak from no place of authority we bring it up at least protest too much (laughs) once an episode we have to say we're we're not experts on any of this but uh there in those games the feedback typically it, it seems like is the the romance part of it but by adding this daughter in who's giving you feedback about her you know her impressions of the guys that you're seeing or um you know her her impressions of the way that you're handling yourself that's that adds another level of of feedback to the player that i thought was was kind of interesting for that game it depends really what the purpose of the child is and so you see a lot of games that do have children in them or have unlockable children and sort of how they get used really determines I mean, it, it's all for a design purpose. And so I'm a huge um, Fire Emblem fan, and I was so happy on the DS version when, you know, you could choose different romances and it would lead to future children that could then be recruited into your army. And I mean, it was just so cool and dorky. That took a, that took a dark turn. <laughs> you could have children and then recruit them to your Go army. The army and I have more archers because I killed I my mean, last archer because that game has permadeath and they're not fucking around. I um, mean, the, the word infantry did literally come from the word infant. So I guess... Uh, I guess oh, it makes God. sense. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's the the purpose of, of the whole, you know, children in that game is to reflect the choices that you made in the, the partner link system, because you would put characters next to each other on the field and they develop an affinity. And if they're of opposing genders, there's a romance arc that's written for them that you can pursue. And it changes the way those units behave. So it, it had a gameplay purpose and adding children just really built on that. What about you, Steve? Are you Are you playing anything that's got kids in it? Anything recent? I don't know if you can call it recent anymore. Uh, I'm always I'm perpetually playing The Binding of Isaac, mm. which is sort of my like go to winding down game. Like if I'm getting ready for bed and Jesus, not, you wind down with Binding. Yeah, of Isaac. like it just stresses me out talking about the game. Well, I mean, I guess thematically it has, it's you know pretty oppressive, but the gameplay itself is is I don't know very repeatable and consistent. Uh, Turns into so, yeah, more of a but, muscle memory thing for you. Yeah, you know, it's it's in some ways kind of like a, you know, bullet hell at times and, you know, so it's I don't know. It in some ways it's very like rhythmic and I can just kind of get into it and okay. go, th- go through the motions of playing it, but I mean, for people who uh, might might not be familiar with Binding of Isaac, you're you're playing as a child who whose mother was told by God to kill you and you escape into the basement where you're confronting childhood demons by shooting your your tears at them as you're crying <laughs> so it's it's, uh, yeah. it's a little dark yeah uh, I thematically mean, it says some things i guess i mean that's the thing about if you're the child is the playable character and you're trying to think in terms of what a child deals with there are actually a lot of games about um getting out of bed in the middle of the night and defeating monsters trying to get a drink of water i actually see that as a common game jam theme and student game theme when i go to those competitions and sort of look hmm. at what gets made it's a very natural starting point for a lot of people uh, probably because it's so relatable. And let's see. Then there's other um, 
things about being a child that just seem to attract gameplay design. So there's Who's Your Daddy on Steam, which is a very hilarious two-player game where oh, yeah. randomly you spawn in as either the baby or as the dad, and the baby's job is to kill yourself as fast as you can <laughs> before the dad can find you and stop you. I think I think they we've reached the peak of VR with that because that is like perfect for VR. I think it's pretty hilarious. Do you think Steve <laughs> Steve is that is it an accurate portrayal of what it's like to have a child? I I can't even tell you. Like <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, constantly trying to stop the the, the oh, suiciding. Yeah, I, and obviously like it's a little bit of hyperbole, but I I mean my my kid is just fascinated with. It, whatever it is you tell him he's not supposed to do is exactly what he wants to go for. So like I'm cooking something on the stove and all he wants to do is touch that stove. He knows he's not supposed to, but it's like it, it eats at him. You can see it where he's like, even when he's like sitting on the couch, he's thinking about like, oh, I just want to touch that stove. Daddy says oh. I can't. <laughs> Have you so, let him yet? Because that was my grandmother's solution to have problem. <laughs> right? Um, no, I... He's two. I mean, maybe when he gets to be three, I'll start letting him make those kinds of mistakes. But <laughs> so, Listen, I mean, son, I remember I my grandmother very distinctly looking me in the eye and saying, "Pain is the best teacher." <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Just, yeah. Was she German? That's you know, funny. She passed a few years ago, but um, today's her birthday. Oh, <laughs> oh wow! Well, happy <laughs> birthday! That just came to, to me just now. Grandma Glasser. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, Grandma Glasser's birthday is is St. Patrick's Day, and she believes that pain is the best teacher. <laughs> there we go. And maybe that's why Binding of Isaac is soothing to you is because, hey. I feel like I had a PE pain. teacher yeah. that said that as well. <laughs> and, and Binding of Isaac is actually, Edmund McMillan has said it's sort of uh, autobiographical in some way. Like, I don't, I don't think. I Did his mom I, threaten to kill him? I don't know. I, he has, has publicly spoken a little bit about like his, the troubles of his childhood. So I, I definitely think you can see some of that reflected in that game. But, and we, maybe we can get into this right now. When we're talking about playing as a child in a video game, what is it a, that makes playing as a child interesting for the gameplay? Because I think about a game like Binding of Isaac, and there's a lot in that game that is about like childhood. The, a lot of the, the dressings on that game are about things that you're afraid of when you're a kid and, and things that you play with as a child. There's references to pets and toys and, and things like that. But the gameplay itself, I don't know if it could be said that it's it's in some way affected by the fact that you're a child, because you could almost remake that game as, you know, a Marine picking up weapons. And there's there's not necessarily anything specific to the gameplay that that spells out that you're a child. Do you guys have any thoughts on this? Like, AJ, do you have do you have thoughts on the differences between when a child is important for the gameplay and when it's just sort of for thematic purposes? Games are the sum of their parts. And so when you get when you look at binding it binding of Isaac, it's it's that game because it's a child. Like it just wouldn't be the same, even if you swapped it out with the Marine, it's the identical engine and you just reskinned it. So I really do think it's important when someone has made that choice as a designer to make a character a child. A great examples, I mean, you've got Ellie in The Last of Us, um, which harkens almost for me all the way back to Sherry Birkin, I think is her name, in Resident Evil 2. And if you're playing the Claire storyline, there is one segment I remember where you're playing a Sherry and you don't have a gun and you need to get across this little like the space between two buildings and there's zombie dogs in there. And it's that was just very difficult. I remember playing that as a child and then playing it again as an adult in college and realizing that because Sherry's a child, she can't really be armed. And even when you're you know, when you're dealing with Ellie, who is armed in The Last of Us, 
she's still a child and it hits you every once in a while, especially when you see that character experiencing a story moment, like when she's looking at the giraffes, because that wouldn't be the same if she was an adult or even a teenager. It just wouldn't work. Yeah, it like felt a, very like important. A, imagine an 18 year old with like a lip piercing having that same story. It's just not going to feel the same. I guess maybe what I'm getting at is while it obviously from like a story standpoint or a theme standpoint, a game like Binding of Isaac wouldn't be the same if you had redressed it as Marine Dude with guns. But there's nothing about that game that's that's like from a quote unquote gameplay perspective that's important that it's a child where I kind of think a game like what is it? Don't kill the baby. No. Who's your daddy? Yeah. Who's your daddy? I think it was originally called Don't Kill the Baby. I think that was its original <laughs> it's name. Very I mean, that is that's proper advertising. <laughs> it's not great marketing, but it is, in fact, accurate. I, I kind of think a game like that is it is important that there's a distinction between the way the, the baby plays and the way the adult plays. And maybe it's sort of that comparison. But that's a game that really takes full advantage of the fact that a child is different from an adult from a gameplay standpoint. Yeah, one of I mean, one of the it's... characters that came to mind for me was uh, Clementine in Telltale's The Walking Dead. Uh, yep. Season one of that is probably some of my favorite storytelling in games, and you play as uh, you know adult male. Uh, his name is Lee, who runs into this young girl who's probably like six. Nah, she's probably older, like maybe eight years old or something like that. She's like eight or nine. Yeah, I think. Um, and you, you sort of end up becoming a father figure to her. Because she doesn't have her family around anymore, um, and it's it's really interesting because y- you feel a very strong attachment to Clementine uh, Lee. Is you know he he wants to I think just get on with his his adventure and and help her reconnect with her parents. Um, but you often find you know a lot of your decisions come down to protecting Clementine. Uh, in season two of the game, you end up playing as Clementine, and I, I went into it. You know, she's a bit older. I think she's grown up. She's like maybe in her early teens, maybe maybe a couple of years later. I I'm, I don't really remember. But it, yeah, it she's was, a, she's supposed to be a teenager because of the events that she had gone through. It seemed like you were just playing an adult, and like it, it kind of it made sense, you know, through the story. But she was already grown up, you know, like her childhood had been lost in that. So when you get to play as her, it it didn't really feel to me as if it, you were trying. You were exploring this god awful zombie infested world as a kid. It was just, um, you know, you're playing as that that grown up character now from season one. I mean, it does change things. I think that in some games it's very important, and it just wouldn't work if it was an adult character that you were playing. Like Sherry's not going to get mauled by those dogs if she was just a little bit taller and could move faster, right. for example. And I don't mean I don't mean to imply that that it's unimportant to the game because obviously. Theme, theme and story are, you know, are huge parts about of, you know, the art of game design. Yeah, I, was, but- I was trying to I was more trying to, I guess, draw the distinction between like the the story and theme of a game versus the gameplay of a game. And yeah, how, how well, I guess I wasn't clear. That. Like Sherry, Sherry moves slower. She's small and moves slower and she can't reach. And so it takes her longer to do things like move a box, for example, which is a very important part of Resident Evil games is being able to move stuff or jump over things. Um, And so because of her size, it did change the game. Like when you play as her, it's a very different calculation that you do for, I need to get across the space. There are two dogs there. How long is that going to take me? Versus if you were playing a different character in that game who's an adult. And then as I'm saying this, I'm actually remembering um, a Sailor Moon video game that, did you guys ever play the Ninja Turtles arcade game? Like on the cabinets back in the early 90s? Yes. Oh yeah. And then on every pizza joint ever. 
Yep. So Namco, Namco Bandai, you know, licensed a ton of that engine to basically create a ton of those exact kind of fighting games. And there was one for Sailor Moon. I'm a huge Sailor Moon fan. And if you beat the game, you unlocked Chibiusa, who is a child character who's physically shorter than all the other Sailor Scouts because she's a child. And yet the game's AI is still programmed for the adult characters and they will constantly punch and kick over her head. She's basically immortal. That's awesome. Unless you walk into their punch, there is no way that they're going to hit Chibiusa. And so it's, it kind of did change the game. Like playing as Chibiusa is friggin' awesome. That's probably why she's unlockable only at the very end. I, th- I think it's like kind of the reason we're having, you know, we're, we're kind of stumbling around this topic is, is because there's not a whole lot of games that allow you to play as kids. It's just, it's not, it's a kind of a, a rare thing. I think more often we see children being used as story tropes, you know, as good as The Last of Us is. It's not it's not the first game to do that. You know, it definitely did it well, oh, yeah. but it, you often are like, oh, I'm like, my, my, I have to find my family. I have to find my get back to my kid. And you know, I started the evil within two. And that game starts out with your kid dying in a house fire. It's like, Jesus Christ. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Like, I really wish game designers would just work through whatever it is is going on in their heads. That <laughs> their compulsive need to just kill their children so that you care. Like, that's. It's a shortcut, but I think oh, it's, yeah. get, it's getting to be a bit much. I'm starting to worry about some of these storytellers. <laughs> and, and it's obviously not unique to games, but I, I wish that as game developers and, and story writers for games, they would consider that and maybe be like, well, how how would this game be different if you played as a child? And and can we make that into this game? Because I think that would, you know, like a lot of the things that we, we, type, we talk about on this podcast, hypothetically, would make for some very interesting stories and, and gameplay choices. Yeah, and and... I mean, you kind of jumped right back right off of it, but I think using children as tropes is something that we see in video games a lot. Like one of my favorite games of all time is Max Payne. And at the very start of that game, your wife and and infant child are both murdered. And it's, I mean, quite shocking. I mean, I was, I was pretty young when that game came out and I remember playing it in a, in a, uh, what was the name of it? It was like a computer store that no longer exists. Now I can't remember the name of it, but I remember thinking like, Jesus Christ, like, is no one's monitoring this game? Like, a woman and baby were just murdered, and I'm, like, 12, and you just let me experience this. <laughs> I like that was your thought at 12. <laughs> it really was. I was like, holy shit, I can't believe that I just saw this while Someone should be supervising this- me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, I, I feel like in this way, kids often do get used in the same way that, that women get used. You know, there's there's a trope. I think we brought it up when we were talking about horror video games. Yeah, that was which with is this, Andrea, right? Yeah, with Andrea Renee. And there's a a common trope called the woman in the refrigerator, which is sort of like this. In, it's what sort of incites the man to seek revenge. Is the is Green Lantern baby? That is all Green Lantern's fault. Yep. Fuck yep. you, DC. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Well, and, uh, for people who don't know, it was a Green Lantern comic book where. The girlfriend was literally dead inside of a refrigerator. Anyway. And that's how you're introduced to her. And it's, that's why you're supposed to care about Green Lantern is because of that. And, she and, spoiled the milk with her awful as she dies. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. I have such a fucking grudge against that fucking comic. <laughs> but this is it. It's. It, it's it feels the same around right? it's been around it is and it's been around for a long time because it works as a motivator the problem with any trope and we've we've mentioned tropes on this show several times before is that when they get overused it sort of limits the alternative storytelling that's possible so when it's always like oh your child is in danger or your child dies and that's always you know the inciting action uh or 
you know, same thing for women. If it's your your girlfriend or wife that dies or gets kidnapped, then we're sort of limiting the the stories that we get to experience. And I think that maybe this has something to do with how we culturally view children. You know, back back in the nineties and earlier, you know, kids were just they were kids, and people never didn't really care what they had to say. Kids were you know to remain quiet and and oh, behave yeah. and. Now seen we not, we're starting to heard. see you know kids that, like they have valid opinions on a lot of things and and teenagers like people need to be listening to children and I, I feel like the views around the younger generations are, are slowly starting to change so you know I think maybe that's why we see kids like Ellie in The Last of Us who's independent oh, yeah. she can take care of herself um, she has you know the writing for her was was fantastic she she seemed believable in that role. Uh, and I think that's just because people are paying attention to what kids have to say now. A lot of the people who are making the games now were playing the games when they were children versus, you know, people who first got into this had never had that experience. It right. just didn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. So I think some of it's wish fulfillment. Like we all wished that we were competent at 8, 9, 10, 11, 13 and would survive a zombie apocalypse. We probably spent a lot of, a, a lot of time imagining it, too. So now we're old enough to where we're in our, you know, late 20s to mid 30s, sometimes even our 40s, and we're finally able to create these stories and these characters. And a lot of times, actually, a lot of these people are also parents now. And so some of that is aspirational for their own children. Oh, and yeah. I think that, that can and, be very powerful, especially when you see something like um, Limbo or Inside, where, you know, it's a child character in both those games. They're very atmospheric horror games where you're trying to platform or just get through a situation and there's no context behind it, but you know that you're a child when you're looking at yourself. Mm -hmm. And you, some of those people I know for a fact are dads. And because it scared them so much, they made that game because they were trying to explore how hard it is to be a parent of a child and the world that they live in. And, and you had mentioned something earlier. You were talking about the graphical fidelity allowing us to more uh, accurately represent what a child looks like in games. And I think as, as, uh, as the technology has gotten better, it's allowed for um, larger stories to be told, more nuanced stories to be told. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot more games that are are, are telling different stories around children. I mean, I when when we picked this topic, there were a few games that jumped to my mind immediately. Things like Papa Yo, where you're playing as a... It's sort of retelling the story of a child growing up with a abusive father, a, a drunk and abusive father. Um, there's games like that dragon cancer, which is a married couple telling a story of, of um, going through the experience of their child passing away from cancer. Um, you know, so as, as the technology, the capability to tell more nuanced stories has improved, we're starting to see a lot more nuance to the portrayals of children in games. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, the other thing that I thought about when we picked the topic of children was how violence against children is handled in in video games. And AJ, I'll, I'll pitch this to you first, but I, are there are there moral issues that arise when you have a violent video game that also includes children? I think that how designers and developers really work through that is interesting. So certainly in things like a zombie apocalypse, you're going to see children having to go through some shit. But then you go play something like Call of Duty Modern Warfare, which is one of my favorite games. Um, I wrote a review of it for Kotaku where I pointed out that there's basically no women in that game at all. There's also no children. You go through a suburban neighborhood that has been destroyed by this invasion, 
and you're going through these houses and you're seeing dead bodies um and it's weird because you don't see any female dead bodies but you don't see any children's dead bodies and you see children's stuff you see i think you see toys um maybe a couple play structures but you never see any dead kids and i'm racking my brains on the walking dead and i don't think that you see any dead children or zombie children in that either they're just not there and some of that might be a moral decision on the designer's part and another component might actually be ESRB ratings, uh, marketing in foreign countries where it might actually be illegal to show a child in certain situations. You know, there is still this concept of censorship, although in the modern era it's getting looser and looser. But if you look at games like Fallout 3, um, in Fallout 2, if you shot and killed a bunch of kids, you could get this title called Scourge of the Wasteland. Children. Like, it had, like, a special subtitle that you had shot up a ton of children. Um <laughs> And in Fallout 3, they kept a lot of those titles to kind of harken back to Fallout 2 and Fallout 1 for the fans, but you damn well couldn't kill a kid in that. Yeah. And they have a city full of children, and when they piss you off, you could unload an entire, you know, inventory's worth of ammo into a child, and the worst it would do is run away crying and say, I'm telling. Oh, yeah, I remember. But, and I remember people yeah, modding, it, it, adding mods to the game so you could murder those children. <laughs> I mean, mostly they did that. How, I hope how badly because did they you just, hate those kids to like spend the time to make them? I think it's because they just wanted to take all the stuff. Because that's the thing that you could do in Fallout was like kill everybody in the town and take all their shit. That's like a Fallout thing to do. But you know, God forbid, there's someone out there who's getting some kind of enjoyment out of killing the children because oh, teehee, I'm killing a kid. That's pretty fucked up in any culture. Yeah. Especially but, with the current okay. conversation around violence in video games. Exactly, and I, I'm curious if if there's some sort of moral obligation to shy away from that. Um, and, and if that's a new invention going from, uh, fallout two to fallout three, what changed between those two games that made the developers want to change the way that, that children, you know, violence against children was handled in those games. The perspective, I think, I wonder if it has something to do with the, the shift from, you know, the, the isometric overhead view to being in first person and, you know, having, having more graphical fidelity in that way. And I can't remember, was was Fallout 1 and 2, I've played them, but it's been so long. Were those Bethesda, or was that someone else before? Um, they, wasn't it? Um, Quick Google search, you guys. I know, right? Black Isle Studios. <laughs> um, I'm just going to say it was, and I'm not going to do any research. <laughs> no, don't do that. Uh, but no, if I, it was Black Isle Studios did Fallout 2. And then we're gonna just hop onto yeah, you know Grand inter- Wikipedia. Interplay Entertainment. This is this sounds like so much work. I refuse to do it. No, yep. <laughs> this is why I'm... games journalism collapses because you think that you're too good to do the work. Anyway, um, but yeah, different different developers. But I really do want to stress. So the first Fallout was 1997. Um, the next one, Fallout Two, was in 98, 99. And the ESRB was really founded, I think, in 1994, but probably didn't have a whole hell of a lot of teeth until the early aughts, if you yeah, think about it. Post-Columbine, for sure. Oh, my God, you're right. I didn't even think of that. You were hmm. you, you brought up the ESRB earlier this week when we were kind of chatting kind of casually about this topic, and, and you reached hmm. out to them, right? I did. I reached out to the ESRB. I was As I was thinking about this topic, I was curious if they had any sort of special ratings that related specifically to children or if they had any guidelines that dictated how they rate games that have... They do. I will tell you right now that they do. And if you're having trouble getting a hold of them, I can fix that too. Oh, okay. (laughs) I mean, you know, and I would be more than happy in a future episode to, you know, release some sort of addendum correcting anything I say here. But at least on their website, I wasn't able to find anything 
that related specifically to depictions of children or violence against children. Um, so when we're talking about things like the ESRB having, you know, some influence on whether a developer, in, you know, in, includes the ability to harm a child in their game, I wasn't able to find any sort of concrete evidence to suggest that that's something that would actually affect the rating. It, I can confirm that it does. And I'll okay. say this because I've seen, you know, in QA, you watch the submissions process and stuff gets kicked back all the time. Um, but also just from industry study over the years, you're talking about putting games on platforms. And this is less relevant now than it was five years ago, thanks to the advent of Facebook and also Steam, um, the Greenlight program and all this stuff where the rating was was it was entirely voluntary. Like you didn't need an ESRB rating to publish a game in most cases. However, if you wanted to be on PlayStation, you absolutely needed a rating. If you wanted to be on Xbox, you needed a rating. Um, and then, you know, after, I mean, iOS games don't need ratings. And so you start seeing situations where people are starting to think about, oh, wait, I can do that because I don't, I totally don't need an ASRB rating. So nobody's watching, right? Um, so I remember seeing some paperwork that came back on a game I worked on. I forget which one it was, but yeah, they were complaining about the depiction of something and it wouldn't have been obvious from the website that that was going to be problematic, but they tell you, I mean, it's not like they want to reject every game that they, they see for a rating, but remember you could not be sold in, in GameStop if you had an adults only rating. Yeah. So if you're putting yeah. together a demo reel for the ESRB showing off, you know, I mean, Max Payne probably had to go through this exact thing about like, how much do we show versus what do we try not to surface and hope they don't notice? The other thing I didn't see on their website, and I was looking for it, was it, are there labels that go along with depictions of violence against children? And most of the labeling for games was pretty generic stuff, you know, graphic depictions of violence, like gore, or, you know, drug use, uh, tobacco use, things like that, that are like sort of pretty boilerplate standard labeling. But I, I didn't see anything where if you looked at a label for a video game, would explicitly tell you like this game has depictions of violence against children i just i i thought it was was interesting because i hear that that brought up a lot that like you know oh, think of it this way though if there was such a rating and it says violence against children don't you think a very twisted individual might look for games with that and buy them on purpose okay perhaps? so this is this is actually getting into an area where i'm gonna admit admit up front that i have not devoted as much time to thinking about as I probably should. But I, I feel like you could go to school for several years just working on this topic alone, which is if if we why like societally are we okay with the idea of depictions of violence as long as it's only against adults? Like you say it, it's gross that someone would go to a, a video game store and and seek out a game that has violence against children included in it but we're totally okay stuffing the shelves with video games that just generally have violence which is interesting because you know we haven't brought up think of the children yet but that entire game is basically violence against children it's not intentional violence it's it's a game where you're preventing children from running out in traffic for example but um it's not that i think we i guess it's hard to talk about especially in the wake of the florida shootings and god forbid all the other shootings i mean we are uncomfortably okay with violence in the modern era, especially when things are just shared straight to Facebook, straight to Twitter, no filtering, nothing. You know, time was news organizations would not show certain things because they were afraid about ratings, because they determined that it did not merit newsworthiness to the point where they needed to show it. 
Um, you know, there's a core tenet in, in print journalism around the morning news should not soil the breakfast cloth. I mean, or something like that. It's basically like, don't make people throw up their breakfast. Right. Hmm. Um, and it's just frustrating to see it kind of all going a little bit sideways in the era of desensitization where people just feel like it's not a big deal or even that it's very funny if you do it right and that if you're funny you'll be forgiven so just keep trying to be funny about it and then you just keep making games with violence in them well and and jared i mean if if we sort of accept that video games do not cause violence which is i I mean something that i that's the research Yes, and 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 I I'm inclined to believe the scientists that are, are actually conducting studies on this stuff. Many, many, um, many, many, many studies. So if we accept that video games don't cause violence, and we accept that video games are not reality by by their very nature, why why is it an issue? This idea of portraying violence against children. Um, I I, I don't know. It's because of probably because of the innocence of children a lot of times children don't have a choice to be in the situation that they are and um i think i guess i i'm gonna bring up uh detroit become human here because during their their paris games week uh last year i think it was they they mm-hmm. trailer they put out a trailer for that game which was just all this, this drawn out domestic abuse scene it was really kind of weird as the first thing to show off your game um the the designer david cage he kind of wanted i guess to show that this is a serious story about serious subjects it's um, it's while simultaneously claiming that the game is about androids but i tend to believe and i play a lot of story games i i tend to really like narrative games but i i also am fully aware coming from a film background that video game writing is pretty bad most of the time Uh, if you consider all of writing video game writing probably doesn't measure up in most places and you know something like domestic abuse, especially when it it involves a, a young child. I don't know that I, I trust a video game to go into the nuances and 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 tackle that subject with the seriousness that it deserves, uh, in in a way that's responsible. And I, and I think maybe that's that's the biggest thing is that kids don't have the choice to be in a lot of the situations they are. So it kind of feels weird versus like when you're uh, seeing violence against adults, it's in a war zone and they're yeah. soldiers or something to that nature. And this, okay. So this brings up another thing that I've kind of been thinking about lately. So the white house recently released uh, whatever it was like an 88 second video showing off the horrible violence in video games, sort of as a response to the recent school shooting. And there was a video games, I don't want to say act, activist group. It's not activist group, but like they're, you know, in support of video games released sort of a counter 88 second video showing the beauty and artistry of video games. I have issues with that video because it showed way, way, way too much Zelda. Like it showed the same games yeah. repeatedly. Well, the, so there's been a lot of discussion recently that by releasing sort of a counter video, it suggests it sort of reinforces the point of the White House's video. That by saying like, no, 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 video games are not violent. You know, here's examples of video games as art. It's suggesting that there's a problem with the violence part of video games. So this, this is where I kind of, I I start to have issues. And again, I haven't, I haven't fully thought all the way through this. I'm just going to kind of throw it out there for discussion, but by refusing to include uh, violence against children. So like a game like Fallout 3, by refusing to depict violence against children in that game isn't that sort of in a in a roundabout way suggesting that there's something wrong with the depiction of violence 
Or am I am well, I way off base in this? I, I mean, it's not really for you, me, or anybody else listening to this podcast to decide because the beautiful thing about games is that they are, in fact, First Amendment protected. And so when you are in the business of creating these games, you get to decide. When you're playing them, the only thing you're allowed to decide is your own interpretation. You can't choose that for someone else. Um, by the way, quick fact check. Game On Together is the name of the video initiative, and it's hashtag Game On one word. So if you want to look up that video... Um, the other one that it, it over-indexed on was um, Horizon Zero Dawn um, mm-hmm. to kind of show these graphics vistas that looked beautiful. Because, yes, games can be very, very beautiful. And they can also be very, very violent. And they can also be very, very funny. At the end of the day, it's just one vehicle for expression, just like books or paintings. Mm-hmm. And so when you try to put moral judgments onto them directly, especially just from a consumer standpoint or from like an armchair art critic perspective... You're never really going to capture the full picture. And so when we're thinking about violence and we're thinking about children, there's just so much nuance in there that really you have to start to try to question intent, but you may never understand intent. Yeah. And, I and, mean, especially you brought up David Cage. God knows what that guy's fucking thinking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was and it was never my it's it, it has not been my intention that we should censor games or that um, depictions of violence against children are in, inherently wrong. I, I would never suggest that. I, I just think it's, I, I think it gets into certain problematic areas when we sort of societally or even within like the the community of, of video game designers, developers, and players refuse to, to have those depictions in games because it sort of, it, it in a way kind of suggests like, oh yeah, we recognize that that there is a problem with depicting violence. Um, I don't think that that should be the case, but I mean, there's, there's more that plays into it than, than just that. I understand that, that there's like, you know, obviously like business considerations and rating considerations and those kinds of things that play into it. But I just think if you're going to include games that have children and your game also has violence, you, you kind of got to bite the bullet on it and, and allow violence against children. At least this is, this is my stance alone. This is Stephen Bennett speaking. This is, this is kind of my stance, which is because the alternative is you're saying that there's a problem with the violence. And I don't, it, in video games, I don't think that there is a problem with the violence. And all the studies suggest that there's no link between violent video games and violent behavior. My counterpoint would be that I think that there's a lot of violence in video games and that's probably because it's an easy way to design a game. There's a lot of gamifying of, of interaction. Interact- interaction yeah, based. absolutely. So, you know, I think my counterpoint would be like, I would like to see more games that didn't have to rely on violence and shooting guns. And if you're going to do that, have a very good reason for it. So, well, I, exactly. would, I, I agree with you that like, sure. Like, like there's probably like not on the very highest level of, of the, th- the thought here that like, why not have, violence against children like it shouldn't matter but i think that if you are going to do it you need to consider why you're doing it um and i, I but i do think that it kind of applies to all violence across you know all genres oh, yeah. i i agree 100 with everything that you just said jared that's a, that's exactly my point right is like if you're going to have a game with violence and there's children in the game then either allow that you know, like violence to be perpetrated against the children, or make a different game, or, like, or, like or come game... up with a situation in which it wouldn't be realistic for children to be there. You know, like there's you're the one who's putting the kids in the game, and you're making that decision. Well, but then as a woman in games, 
frequently they just opt to just not do it. So I don't see myself represented in a lot of games because I bet you there are a lot of people who aren't okay with women getting shot to shit. I mean, that is why in Fable 2, yes, you can play as a woman and have a child. You will never be pregnant in that game. They took it out. They even prototyped it. And then Peter Molyneux just thought, that's fucked up that you can be pregnant woman getting cut up by bandits on the road. I can't do it. Yeah. And, and I think it it's just hard. You know, it's it's video games have a history. A lot of designers, they pull from existing ideas already. And I think doing stuff like that is is difficult to do. So they just don't do it. But there are definitely interesting implications of having that in there, which I would like to see explored because there's there are there's a lot that we haven't you know the more we talk about these kind of um, intangible subjects it's it's like we there's a common theme that I keep coming back to is like the interesting stories that we aren't telling and I think that you know by if we started thinking about how can we do this responsibly it would be it would be a very potentially cool way to explore uh, you know an interactive world like that. We don't we don't have to spend too much too much longer on that because I, I mean obviously there's a lot of discussion to be had around there and we could spend all day kind of like talking about the ramifications of, of this stuff. Um, I'm really curious to hear what people listening have to say on this. You know we'll we'll call for feedback later in the episode, but I, I, I'm this probably more than anything we've discussed so far. I, I would love to get feedback on. So if you're if you're listening and you found the discussion at all intriguing, please send your thoughts along. So quickly moving on here, AJ, are there any games that include children that utilize them in sort of an interesting way that you can that you can think of that that you haven't really seen done in other games before? So I mentioned before, um, won't someone think of the children? And that's, you know, kind of what we let in on. And that's a comedy game. And so you're playing as the adults with situations where there's lots of little children running around um, and you're trying to keep them from getting hurt. And you're also trying to corral them into objective based areas. As someone who's spent a lot of time around little kids lately, especially as I'm kind of on my journey to motherhood, I thought it was a well-done game in terms of humor. And because it was pixelated and because it's, you know, over-the-top cartoony, the violence in that game is not the point. And so I'm comfortable playing it and I can laugh at the joke. I feel very comfortable in that game. And I really enjoy it whenever someone wants to do something like Who's Your Daddy, where the point isn't to upset you or shock you. It's supposed to make you laugh. And yes, sometimes... Humor does upset and shock, but I believe there's a comedian out there, you're going to have to Google, who said that the definition of comedy is the benign violation of expectation. And so as we watch game developers kind of go out there and try to tackle stuff that's, you know, violence and children and stuff, if they're aware of what it is that makes something benign versus malignant, go for it, because I will buy that game and play it and enjoy it. But as soon as you cross over into malignant, I just don't know if I can follow you there. I could not have said it better myself. And Jared, how about you? Is there any any games that use uh, children in in an in, in interesting way? If I can speak, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like I said, with with um, the Last of Us, I really like the way that they they treat that that girl like she's an adult and that she has valid opinions while still balancing what it's like to be a teenager uh, in kind of a fucked up world. So um, I would like to see that. I, I think that. Kids do have a lot of interesting and really good points. We've seen that recently in the news media. I would like that to carry over uh, to, you know, the video games world. I think there's a lot of cool stories from that perspective. Yeah, very well said. And AJ, how can the video game industry sort of improve in the future in the way that it represents children in video games? So this kind of runs counter to some of the stuff we were talking about before with, you know, making sure there was a point to having children in your game if your game is going to be super violent, etc. I do encourage designers and people who create games to try 
and explore and push and just look for ways to kind of explore that space if it interests you because you're creating something that follows along with your interests and that's when you're going to find things that are special or interesting. Binding of Isaac is interesting because it's about being a child, not because it's about being Marine. And how would you have ever gotten there if you kind of self-censored yourself into never making a game that had violence and children together? So as you go out there to make these kinds of games or look for them, you know, keep in mind the point, but then also continue to be bold in what you're willing to explore as a creator. So I think that that's how we're going to get there is when we as a kind of medium mature because we're asking ourselves these very self-aware questions. Having a two-year-old, I've been watching a lot of uh, Miyazaki films. I mean, the wife and I got tired of watching Frozen and Moana and those, <laughs> you know, like the the same Disney movies over and over again. So I was like, well, let's sacrilege. Go. There's there's plenty of like great um, children's films from other countries. So we're watch- we've been watching a lot of the Studio Ghibli, Miyazaki, and we're starting to branch into some of the other directors that are under the fact check. It's Ghibli. Ghibli. I've yes. I've only ever seen it written. I guess. I know. I mean, it's fair, but I lived there for a while, so I'm just letting you know. Uh, well, th- <laughs> thank you for the the correction, Studio Ghibli. But the thing that strikes me so much about Miyazaki's films is that he concentrates so much on the stories of children and and stories that are unique to children. Um, you know, things like children using their imaginations and coming to understand the world that adults sort of take for granted are, are themes that come up a lot in his movies that I don't really see reflected in video games too much, you know, especially when a lot of the AAA games are just like, you know, h- how to land the coolest headshot. I, I, I appreciate what you're saying, AJ. I would like to see more video game designers and developers sort of reach for new kinds of experiences that we haven't seen in video games yet. And that's, that's, that's what I'd like to see in the future. Um, did we touch on everything that we wanted to touch on? Yep. I think so. All right. Very cool. Well, before we move on to our listener feedback section, we have to say goodbye to AJ Glasser. AJ, thank you so much for, for spending your time with us and talking children and games. So great meeting you. Nice to meet you too. And thank you for having me. And if anybody wants to chew me out for God knows what, you can find me on Twitter. I don't check it often. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, AJ. Steve, I have a question for you specifically. Shoot, brother. Uh, what being a dad? You've you've been a dad for a couple of years now. Does that has that changed how you see kids in video games? Like, does that? I mean, obviously, you kind of already said your piece about how you feel about violence against kid, uh, about children in video games. But have you you've played The Last of Us? Correct? Uh, no, I have not. Well, I, I it, need it, to. It's on my it's on my list of of games to get back around to. But I've uh, got I, so much damn Overwatch to play. <laughs> I played that game, you know, around the time it came out, and I wasn't really even thinking about having kids there. But at the beginning, uh, the main character Joel he loses his daughter, and it's a very it's it's a heart wrenching scene. It's like one of the most. It's one of the few times that I felt like actually emotionally affected by a story in a video game. And I'm wondering, not The Last of Us, any any other games that depict something similar, has has, mm-hmm. has your views as a father changed on on that kind of type of uh, trope? I guess it's funny because I know that there's a lot of people who, when they have a kid, say that their their views on media change. Like when <laughs> after we had Griffin, we tried to watch the movie The Witch, which for people who haven't right. seen it is uh, starts out with a infant being abducted. If you haven't seen the movie, definitely watch it. It's a great horror film, but Um, my wife the moment the kid got kidnapped was out of the room she's like gone yep 
I, she left me to finish watching that movie by myself because it, it affected her in that way. It, for me, I ha- I've found that media has not affected me in that same way. Like I could still play a game where there's depictions of violence against children and, and I don't have um, a problem with it, I guess, sort of beyond the whatever problematic issues that inherently brings with it. Um, having a kid has affected me in other ways outside of games. I'll say that like, um, you know, the, the, the news of the school shooting, you know, when, when Sandy hook happened, I was obviously, you know, that was obviously very sad, but I don't remember being sort of like physically moved in the way that I was when this most recent shooting happened. And I think it's because now that I have a child, I sort of, you know, I, I imagine that situation, but with my own kid and it, you know, in, in those ways that the real life stuff is the stuff that's more heartbreaking for me. But no, having, having a kid doesn't affect the way that I, I view media really not in any, in any significant ways that I can think of. I'm finding that while I am, I am not a father, but I, a lot of my friends are obviously you, you and, um, you know, my, one of my other good friends, AJ, were the, the first to have children, not the, not and, the AJ on this episode. No, no, no. Different AJ. <laughs> um, and I, I think that, you know, being that my close friends now have kids, I, 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 I you know, me and you are very similar people. So I, I would agree with like, maybe it doesn't change the way I see um, the way I view media, but it has kind of changed the context for me. I think that um, I, I'm able to empathize in a different way that when I was, I guess, less mature, wasn't able to identify with as much, um, especially growing up as an only child. It's just like, I, I it wasn't something I ever thought about. So, yeah. um, you know, I, all my friends having children has definitely, I guess, changed my worldview. I'd well, say the, that. I guess, I guess the thing I will say is having a kid maybe hasn't affected the way that I think about things like portrayals of children in video games, but it's definitely changed the way that I uh, ingest video games in general like when i when i think about things like online chat i now i now think about like oh like someday my kid is going to be able to talk on on a video game and speak with strangers and and get called a scrub by a complete stranger you know (laughs) um and i think about things like loot boxes or the way that video games are monetized i now think about that stuff through the context of like someday my kid is going to have to interact with with these um, with these systems. So it, I guess, I guess having a kid does change the way that I, I interact with video games a little bit, but not from, not really on the content side, more on the delivery side. It's well said. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, I think a lot of people can identify with that. All right. Well, I guess now's a great time to move into our listener feedback. If you have any questions or comments about children and video games or any of our previous topics, you can always send us an email at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. And please, I I am actually really interested to hear people's feedback on this on this topic because I think there's a, a lot of different perspectives and um, I, I'm, I'm interested to hear what, what people have to say on it. But you can also I don't know if we ever said this because it's uh, we don't use it that often, but there's also a contact form on our website if you want to reach us, reach out to us that way. Um, you know, outside of tweets, if you have a, a longer thought, please feel free to send us an email using that uh, contact on the website. Do it. All right, do Jared, it. what do we got? What do we got today? Uh, our first one was from at Mr. Mischievous on Twitter. He says on the topic of character creation, I dislike it sometimes when a new game requires me to pick a specific character type that locks me out of some gameplay. 
if I don't know a game, I don't want to be locked down to uninformed choices. It's like giving a kid a credit card or a loan. They don't know how bad they might be screwing themselves. Uh, I think that was also one of my points in in that episode where yeah. if I'm I'm familiar like, RPGs, the tropes, you know, the the standard classes are there. You kind of know what you're getting yourself into, but the nuances of um, how that system works is I, I hate being locked into that as well. Um, well, it, Diablo was one of those where I started playing as a wizard. And I was like, I, I kind of hate this. And then, you know, I was already 50 levels in or whatever. And I was like, I guess I'll just roll a new character. But yeah. And in those cases, it can kind of suck to go back to the beginning. Um, we, we got a, some feedback on Reddit uh, from username Dokaka. And Dokaka says, when it comes to stats and character type, more often than not, it's just the result of you picking the type of gameplay you know you prefer, even if you haven't played that specific game yet. I'm a slow weapons, big hits kind of guy, so I instinctively go for the two-handed wielding class for my first run. I mix it up for a second playthrough, but more often than not, I find my preconceived favorite play style to still be the most fun for me, which is why I pick it in the first place. And the reason I'm reading this immediately after Mr. Mischievous's comment is that it brings up a point we didn't really get to in our character creation discussion, which is the idea that character creators allow you to play the game different ways. Like it allows for replayability in a way that a game like uh, Uncharted doesn't necessarily allow you to do. Like when you when you start up a game of Uncharted, it's the same every time. Yeah. But but by being able to pick a class, it can really change the way that you play the game if you go if you go into it a second or third or fourth time. So yeah, in in some cases it kind of sucks if you kind of lock yourself out of content or you pick a you pick a role that isn't really jiving with you, but there is also this other kind of cool aspect to it which is hey, you can play the game again with the, you know, a, a fresh set of eyes and a new perspective and I, I think that's kind of cool. I have good, never a played point. a video game all the way through twice with maybe the exception of Final Fantasy 7. Yeah, it's not how I like to play games. You know, there's so many games out there and so little time. You don't you don't do the new game plus ever? No, I and that's like part of my problem getting through Nier, where Nier is kind of a special case. But it's like I I I don't know. I feel like I I'm happy and I want to stick with the experience that I had. And if I really want to maybe see a different ending, I can just look it up somewhere. I don't know. It's just it's hard for me. I I just don't think there's many games that. I can commit a whole nother playthrough to. I agree. I'm in the same. I'm in the same camp as you. I, I think maybe, the original Deus Ex is the only game I can think of where I've done this, where I played it one way on my first playthrough, and then actually later played, you know, picked different stats and, and went down different skill trees and played it a completely different way the second time. But outside of that, yeah, I, I don't typically go back to, to playing games. Uh, second time uh, and we should we should also mention that the, this next comment is also from reddit um the reason we got some feedback on reddit was because we had abby russell on our last episode and i cross posted our, our link there because uh it's a great subreddit with a great community and they always like seeing uh some of the the giant bomb crew outside of the website so uh, and that's the that's the giant bomb subreddit Yes, yes. And uh, so uh, I thank you to everyone who commented on that. We have one more from Reddit is from my number is 29. Um, They said, this was a fun listen. It made me realize how boring I am when it comes to both cosmetics and general stat customization, though. I go with a stock face that semi resembles me with no further customization and pair it with slightly more buff but not muscles everywhere type body. 
or stats, I always go with either a roguish type, hard to hit, hard hit and fast, or paladin type, tanky, but still get hit. Uh, if there's guns involved, it's always almost always sniper or stealth. I should really branch out. <laughs> so thank you. Uh, my number is 29. I also feel that maybe sometimes I should branch out. I always try to go the stealth route if that's given to me as an option. Um, if I get a sniper rifle, I look for a silencer before I use it. Um, that talk, really we made... talked about this in our stealth episode, but I feel like most games that include stealth as an option sort of push you to that option. Like yeah, they like reward you for playing the right way. Yeah, so I I don't know I don't I don't fault this person for the way that they choose to sort of spec themselves in games that allow for stealth because I think that that most games that allow for stealth they expect you to play that way or or reward it more heavily I don't know it's well in, Di- in Diablo three in most games like that I like the magic I like in in World of Warcraft I like playing a healer or a mage a DPS character and then I tried it in Diablo. And it just wasn't fun because, like, I think the main draw of Diablo for me is just, like, slaughtering hundreds of mobs that are on screen all at once. And it looks really cool. It's very satisfying. Uh, and as a mage, you can do that in later levels. But it was always kind of, like, you're, you're, you're not, like, in the action. You're just trying to, like, run away and stand back. And I found that going and playing a warrior or whatever the class is called, the, the melee brute character, um, which I would never pick in, in a video game typically... Um, I, I found that to be a more satisfying interaction using the up close melee. I think I, sh- I should probably branch out more often. I'd probably find, uh, you know, new ways to play that I, I would probably enjoy. No, I'm not going to branch out. I, <laughs> I, I typically know the kinds of the, the kind of way I like to play and I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Should I change? No, no. <laughs> it's the games that are wrong. Uh, but that's it for, for our listener feedback for this episode. We had we had a lot of great uh, comments and uh, feedback. So thank you for everybody who yeah, who and and in. good discussions actually going on too. Uh, people responding. So if you get at us on Twitter or find one of our Reddit posts, there's there's typically a good conversation going on there with uh, respectful people having respectful conversations. It's weird to see on the internet, but always appreciated. And that's going to do it for our listener emails. Again, you can always send your emails to us at podcast at gbfeature.com and please do. And that's going to do it for this episode. Before we get out of here, I, I have to thank our guest AJ again for spending her time with us. That was a that was an amazing conversation. Something really hard, really difficult to talk about. As a reminder, we release new episodes every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and want to help us out, please head over to iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast. This is rad. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. And I'm Jared. What am I? At Jared Bruner. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Your parents are the ones that named you. Social media. Find me. <laughs> we want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. All right. Thank you, Jared. Thanks, man. Or whatever your name is. <laughs>